Are you ready to clear a new path? Are you ready to get vulnerable and lead with truth? Welcome to Clearing a New Path Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Clearing a New Path Podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-oppressive rural Canada, one that genuinely embraces authenticity and is rooted in reconciliation. Each episode, we'll examine issues and look for collective solutions all outside of the city limits. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. As a response to injustices that happen around the globe, protests and demonstrations have always been a way for people to express their views in a very public way. We've all seen big protests and demonstrations depicted on TV news and increasingly on social media, but many of those displays of solidarity happen in bigger cities. I believe that there are progressive folks looking to get involved in social movements in smaller rural and remote communities across Canada too, but many don't know where to start. David Alton is a queer organizer and community facilitator. They co-founded Ground Up Waterloo Region in 2020 to help fill gaps and build bridges in the grassroots world of Waterloo Region. What started as a Twitter account has now grown into a network of 100 local organizers. Roy Mitchell grew up in Northern Ontario and escaped to be gay, make films and videos, and trouble in Toronto. He's now back in Northern Ontario where he is a community organizer and runs the Hibla Artist Residency. After 10 years, he still can't believe he is living rurally and loving it. I met Roy through a mutual involvement in the Drag Storytime Guardians, and that group's counter-protests at Drag Storytimes in rural Ontario this summer. But Roy has become a great friend and mentor to me, and I am grateful to have benefited from his wisdom. Both he and David share insights into what folks across rural Canada can do to form their own grassroots movements and organizations. Special mention to Blueprints of Disruption podcast with Jessa McLean, as that's where I heard about David and Ground Up. It was a suggestion from Roy. David and Roy, welcome. I'm really excited to have you both. I'm really excited to get your insights today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. So what was the initial spark that ignited your activism? I mean, was it a long time ago? Was it recent? What made you actually act? I would say that my, a lot of my activism just started in the more passive personal way of just like getting into arguments and debates with people in my life, following things online and like watching all these conflicts happening and then 
you know, being dramatic, publicly dramatic with my friends and family as like, that was like level one. <laughs> right. And then once I get, once I got comfortable enough with the idea that, you know, you can be dramatic and your friends and family can, they can handle that and you can navigate those, that part of your, those relationships started looking to the outside world. I find protests are so empowering. I was in Quebec during the, um, their huge 2012 protest movement. And there's something really perspective shifting about standing in a protest that has 200,000 people. Like it really shifts your mind of what is actually possible with people power. Like, and that protest led to a majority government calling an election early, right? Like, so there is the sense of power that can come from direct action. But I would say when it comes to like starting ground up, which was more of my organizing efforts where I was trying to like, okay, how do I build something together? So that happened in December of 2020. We were like, what if we just started publicly trying to organize and publicly trying to rebel rouse and you know do what we do. We're doing in our private lives in a public way. So my friend and I started the account naming things that need to be named and saying things that need to be said and putting pressure at, and thinking about like pressure points for elected officials or for journalists or for whoever. And then that's when our first opportunity for our first rally came about because I'm from Waterloo region and it's an interesting space, right? Cause there's parts of it are super urban, very like Toronto vibes, but then it's not far to the suburban life. And then these like semi suburban, semi rural communities. And I was living in one of these called Baden, which is at the edge of the city. And I mean, the mayor of Baden was blatantly white supremacists would post white life matters content on their mayoral thing and and no one else in the government system could hold them any accountable at all and there was local indigenous people who were trying to raise awareness about sir john and mcdonald and so tried to take team with them to support their work and learning how to be a supportive person and then once we heard that there was going to be a uh, like a white lives matter rally in the community starting to mobilize things to be like okay we know the indigenous organizers are exhausted we know the black organizers are exhausted this is right here in our community like we just need to do something and and once learning doing that and learning from that and then from there the ball was far gone like you know we're already now at council meetings we're already now making public letters we're already now organizing rallies and you just learn lessons and stumble forward Wow, thank you for that. Roy, how about you? First of all, I think I was blessed with an imagination because you have to believe there's going to be something better. You know, I was a young, fat, queer kid in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario going, this is shit, but look at what's on TV. Look at what they <laughs> did. A small town in Northern Ontario, I didn't have any sense of justice. I just had a sense, get out of here and do good things somewhere else. I had an imagination and thank God that was part of it, right? We were working class and my mother got some money from my grandfather to build new cupboards in the kitchen. And oh my God, we were going to have a microwave. We were going to have like overhead lighting. We we're going to have all this shit. Really exciting. The whole family was in a room. And the guy came and did the shoddiest job he had ever done. And my mother was devastated. Here's this woman who doesn't have much of an education. She had this dream of a beautiful kitchen. And then she said, Roy, can you go and tell him what he did wrong? And I was going, holy shit, my mother, who is a tough cookie, Italian housewife, cannot face this white man who, you know, was connected to the family. That's why he got the job. He was a friend of a friend of a father. She put me out to tell him everything he did wrong. And God, I felt powerful. I felt like 
I'm sticking up for my mom. I'm telling a big, you know, asshole of a man what to do right. I didn't know the first thing about woodwork, but here I am a woodwork expert, right? So that was like, really, I was trying to think of the first thing, right? And then when I went to school, I read a lot of Bertolt Breck because I was studying theater, right? And I thought, oh my God, here's this guy writing plays, putting them on anywhere, and actually sending a message and do it using theater to educate people. I was, oh my God. And I started reading about environmental theater and the Worcester Group and all these people that live together to create theater to change the world. I thought, that's me. That's what I'm going to do. I never did that. I came to Toronto and Toronto was like my life force. Toronto was the good medicine I needed as a queer kid. And I came into Toronto when AIDS was happening and there was activism there. I was like protesting for my life with all these wonderful queer people. I was finding my voice. I was learning from all these people and connecting the dots. It was exciting, right? And then I think for this last one, the last protest kind of that led up to all this was during these Save the Children hate rallies that were happening across Canada. The last one was October 21st. I had this idea and it always comes from a spark. I remember talking to this artist from Copenhagen and he said what he did, he brought his easel into the government house where all the politicians were meeting and he started to paint them. It freaked them out. So I organized something like that in Toronto, where we had an art drawing class outside of City Hall. Then we all went in with boards and we drew it. And then we had a show at a gallery of all these, you know, characters and drawings of council. So here's people learning about municipal politics. Actually, for a lot of them, it was the first time to know they could go into the chamber. They could see this. They could participate. And then they had a, we had a show. And of course, I don't know if anybody out there knows Giorgio Mammoliti, but he was like the Italian stallion in Parliament. He showed yeah. up to the art show that that afternoon thinking he was going to meet a chick or something. I don't know. He pulled up on his bicycle. He had all in black with a T-shirt that said Gucci. And everybody was going, fuck. You know, like we have achieved something here. For me, the spark, the energy is creating joy in the protests. And it's hard and it's not always possible. But if you can have people see that they're enjoying themselves, then that's important. And not platforming the hate, like stay away from it. So what we had in here last month was we had an art in where people were told, come, we'll gather. We won't be right in front of the haters. We'll be drawing art. We'll be making, drawing each other, drawing whatever we want. Some people brought poetry. And we all sat around. We had a better place than the haters. They were like on the road where cars whizzed by them. We found a stop sign. People had to stop. We were laughing. We had lots of rainbows. We we said, we only want three messages. Don't come with like, you know, love is love or any of that BS. I did, We didn't say that. We said, here's some suggested signs you might want to put. And they did. And people loved it. And from that, we're growing into a movement. We're growing into like local community because I think there's a real need to organize. Okay, so both of you are passionate and you have found that spark. How do you <clears throat> ignite that spark in other people? So how do you encourage, engage, make them show up? Is there a secret sauce? Fundamentally, like people do care. And like so there like I don't think it's necessarily about making people care because there are wherever you are, there are people who care. It's just there's a sense of you know, we don't have a lot of literacy on where do you go next? Making change means fundamentally like taking risks. Like it's fundamentally about disrupting whatever the status quo is. And so if you're in a culture, you know, taking risks is a big thing, right? And if you don't know how to take risks and what are the next steps, I think people get really lost in there. Once you've taken a risk, you know how to do it. I'm going to go do that first initial risk and 
I will put it out there and let you all know, you know, people will then flock to that because they want to make a difference and they want to learn how. We do not have to try hard to get people to come out to our actions. And what we found is like ground up, I mean, it started just me and my friend. And now it's, I would say, a network of 75 to 90 people. Um, and the majority, vast majority of them, not experienced advocates. They came and they were like, we just, I, I, I want to help. And you were, you're giving me the tools to help. And now I, I want to tap into this so I can learn from you. And, you know, I will go have my first delegation with, you know, and you'll teach like, and I'll do it with you. And then I'll feel more comfortable to do that the next time. Or you're teaching me about marshalling. Now I know, and now I have the tools. The hardest part is finding someone, like finding people who have the capacity to take those first initial risks. You need someone to blaze that forward. And then once that's there, I think it's just creating the opportunity for all those people then to then learn from that and to take that next step with you. What about you, Roy? I totally echo what David said. It's always building the momentum, right? How do you build the momentum? Because like, what do you do after you have a wonderful rally? Like, what do you do with all these people? How do you make them feel they're they're accomplishing something? So for me, it's like creating achievable goals within the whatever you're doing. Like if you said bring rainbows and people bring rainbows, we have one, right? It's not like we're going to overturn the government at a rally. And I think in my heart, that's what I wish would happen. Like, I wish it would. But the thing is, my expectations and the neighbor who's just coming because they like my dog, right, are totally at different polarities. So how do you bring that person into and educate ourselves about what we need to do next, why we're here? It's always educating, I think. And I think I shared this with you. And and David, if I didn't share it with you, I will. But it's a little video. It's three minutes long, and it's called How to Start a Movement. And it's about the crazy dancing guy. It's incredible. And it's this crazy dancing guy who, because he's dancing crazy, brings people in and makes the people that are dancing with the crazy guy feel like they're part of it. And they're dancing, but it becomes this movement of people dancing. And that's the image I like to use. It's like you're coming to be part of something, right? You're coming. You're coming to where a place where we can win and we can feel that win and we can feel that joy because over there, if you're going to like not do anything or you're basically saying you support these guys. Right. So I think it's the idea to build momentum. It's the idea to make people have achievable goals and also make feel they're doing something right. Like the worst thing is you have a list of 300 people and you don't have anything for them to do. And they're going, well, why would I even fight this fight? Because you know, but then again, you have to think like David, when they were talking, they were talking about people that come didn't know what to do. And yes, the educating, educating. But I think, you know, you have to realize that people coming, it's fantastic, but they're not going to always be willing to take the risk. So you have to create a space that we're drawing, we're singing, where we're, you know, doing stuff to get our message out that doesn't involve yelling across the street at these haters, because what does that do? Right. I don't think it does too much. Well, I really like the metaphor of dancing, right? Because I think the psychology around dancing is actually very similar to the psychology around organizing, right? Like, I don't know who's ever been at an event and like, you know, people are like, oh, I need that liquid courage to dance or people. There's just so much of those internal blocks people have around taking that step to be publicly 
doing something different. Like that's what dancing is like moving your body, like, and, and not knowing how, and all those little blocks that people that prevent people from just being free and moving and taking that risk. And I think those same blocks are the same blocks we deal with, with the risk of saying something great about your community, that it's time for something change that people who are being marginalized deserve better than what they're getting. I think those psychological blocks are the same. And, and I think then the idea about creating the space that allows people to work through those blocks easier and faster is very helpful. The idea of creating the environment to allow people to do things they might th- not have thought they could have done on their own, but you have created a space mm-hmm. that makes them feel like they can. Yeah, I think as a queer man, like you're queer and you got to go into a gay bar. That's a risk. You got to like, you know, dress up nice. That's a risk. You got to go on the dance floor and, you know, do it right. That's a risk. Being queer <laughs> and looking for this community that exists from Northern Ontario, you go, oh my God, I'm so grateful for these moments. I'm so grateful to be with my people. I'm so grateful to dance with them and laugh and have a good time. And and maybe the rallies and all this stuff is creating an opportunity for this space that is that space or could be that space in the future. We could all be dancing together. The risk to go into those spaces, we have to make sure it's as low as it can be and people understand if there is a risk, what that risk could be. And that's why you create these safe spaces. You say, listen, you're going to be yelling at people. You might know your next door neighbor who's on the other side. How do we How do we make sure that's not going to happen? Or if it happens, you have some way to deal with it. Well, that leads great into the next question, which is specific challenges for rural communities when it comes to organizing, where if you're in Toronto, for instance, or Montreal or Halifax or Vancouver, there's a degree of anonymity. There's diversity because of the largeness and, and the vast population. Whereas in a rural community, there's less safety, less anonymity. People could accost you in the grocery store. Your dentist could be you know, a hater. So what are some of the specific challenges of organizing in rural communities and, and maybe some solutions to that? Something that I think is growing in, in kind of its challenge is the kind of insider-outsider dynamic. Especially in the past year, we've seen a lot more people move into more rural environments than they would than they would have been in the past. When we organized our rally in 2020 in Baden, there was this kind of common refrain that this was just outsiders coming into the community, like the people from the city coming into the community to, to change our ways. And, and that sense of insider-outsider thing is something that's really... I mean, it's not accurate anymore because like the rural communities are diversifying and anyone who's there is there. But I think finding ways to delegitimize that neighbor, that narrative so that more and more people feel like they can be a part of the community. It, it makes it easy for others to dismiss and we want it to not be dismissible. Right. And so changing that definition of what is inside and outside is, I, I think, a big challenge. And you're right. There's a family compact, a very tight relationships especially when it comes to like systems of power so if you have if you're in a town and the pe- person like you know with, with me it's your mayor maybe it's the head of your chamber of commerce i don't know like you know those there's some people <laughs> in a position of power who are causing harm through their roles right because of the there's this real cemented system of re- network of relationships around them that can be very hard to unwind and like i don't have full answers to how to resolve these like i will say we got rid of that mayor and then in the next election his community elected a slate of people just to reject 
what we had done, right? And so clearly we were like made a statement that we made them so frustrated that they had to mobilize in that way. But it's not, it's, it's definitely, I think it's going to be an ongoing journey. And the smaller, the less anonymous your community is, I think that does create added risk. So I'm, I'd love to hear more and like learn more from that. I live in a place where our mayor, there's roads and hills and settlements named after them. It's like knowing Mr. Young is the mayor of uh, your town and the main street in the town is named after him. So it's like, you know, if you have a Fitzgerald running for council, that's a dog, they'll win, right? Like, I mean, it's just the name recognition around here. And even if you lived here like yeah. 30 years, you're not local. Local people basically are born here and their grandmothers are from here. So like you are not part of the scene if you're not from here. Dave's saying there's more people moving here. It's just like the city where, you know, they've got their mortgage to worry about. They've got their family to worry about. They've got the winter to worry about. There's this belief, oh, this new influx of ideas and stuff like that. A lot of people are exhausted. They come here and it's to relax, right? So to get them motivated is hard. And also like social spaces, we don't have them. Like those third spaces people talk about, libraries, basically, right? So your library is the center in these rural places. Circling back to when you asked me about activism, what sparked things. So when I first moved here, I was going, holy fuck, I love it here. But there are like a lot of pushback on anything progressive here. Like it just like, I came because I was a progressive community, but that progressive community is like limited in its scope, right? But I love them. So the thing at the library is somebody on staff was telling me it's not the best place to work. And I went, okay, let's deal with this. The head of the library, she decided that because she didn't like coffee, she was going to get rid of the coffee. So you couldn't go to the library and have a coffee. And I was going, you know what? We live in a rural place. The library is the only place where you can go where you don't have to pay for anything. So if you can't go and have a coffee in rural Ontario when it's 30 below where you can go and have a coffee with your friend, you don't have to have the heat up and spend money. You don't have to do any. There's a fireplace in our library. Sit around the fireplace. Talk to your friend. She took away that coffee. And I made a big stink about it. Bring coffee back to the library. It was all over social media. It was in the paper. Coffee got back. But that was a really small thing that uh, I could do in this community when I first started, right? But I think also the church, the church is really strong here, like evangelical church. I think Bancroft has more churches per capita than anywhere in Canada. So you have all these evangelical people on council, the idea too that isolation, like to get anywhere to meet anybody, you there's no public transit, you have to take your car. If you don't drive, you're unable to drive, you can't go. There's divisions between like young people and old people because we skewer toward old. So we don't, we've never had the po- the opportunity to bring young people in because it's like a different world sometimes. And we don't have the links to those young people. And, and especially if you're queer, there was a queer group started and it's like, oh, we can go and pick them up. Well, imagine a queer person who's in the closet going, I'm going to go and jump in this car with this old guy and go to my gay meeting, mom and dad. Like, yeah, David, I don't have a lot of answers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you build community. You find ways to build community in small ways. And you know what? You make them love you. You make them think, oh my God, Roy is so much fun. Oh my God, Roy is so hilarious. Oh, Roy's doing all this great stuff. And then it's like, you hate somebody so good as Roy? Fuck you. Like that's, I think, what yeah, like you just have a good time. We definitely do have good times. And we make sure- Okay, good. Like, actually, I would say the like there's a huge spine of what we do that's 
just about relationship building work and and also like reminding us about the joy within this work i think that's very critical but i was thinking about like the solution to this the the insider outsider dynamic or the, like and this is where i wonder like if waterloo region has a lesson for our more rural communities in that like part of the structure of waterloo region forces <laughs> rural communities into relationship with urban communities. When we were organizing our rally, majority of people who showed up were people from the community, but we did have people from the cities come and help. And we also were able to rely on, for example, the academic anti-racism thought leadership of people at the universities locally to help guide us. So we were able to draw on those resources, thinking regionally, like allows you to draw on resources and supports elsewhere. Ground up now, we've shifted more to focus more on stuff in the urban core but we still have a lot of people from the rural communities who are still participating and i think it's like the idea that they see what's going on in the world and it might be harder for them to do something in their direct community but they connect with us so they're not alone and they haven't a channel to do stuff a channel to act somewhere and knowing that these things are in relationship like you know our rights to supremacist mayor still had to report to the regional council and so this, the idea of thinking regionally, you know, maybe it's not safe to act here, but you could act at the next community over. I also think of like watching what's been going on with Perth Stratford Pride and how they have tried to really lean into the idea of Perth as a region. Queer people across Perth can connect into different resources, lean into the strengths where there's strengths, and then like lean into protections where there needs to be protections. And so if you watched, I think this past summer's Stratford Perth Pride, there was so much energy there. And I think it's because of this idea of being able to act as a region to create spaces that were safer for people and then also places where people can act and then connect the resources back to places that are more isolated. There's still mm -hmm. ways to build momentum, even if directly in your neighborhood isn't the best place to do it. It's really hard to be a one issue activist in rural Ontario because you're an activist. And so like you don't have the ability to say, oh, yeah, I'm the chair of this group that is dealing with this one specific issue. That's so no, no, you have to be at every you have to be at least seen to support those groups. Right. If you just sit at home and going, I'm only going to gay rallies. You might go to two rallies in the 10 years you live here. Right. Because there's not going to be that many. But if you go to the rally to support yeah. indigenous people, maybe they'll show up to your rally. Maybe they'll see that you support them and, and want to be part of it, or at least give you the support. So I think that it's exhausting in rural areas because you have to create not only your areas to play in, you have to create your areas to fight in, you have to create your areas to learn in. It's a little different from an urban setting where you have access to all of these resources, right? All of these people. We live in a beautiful area, take sustenance from the world we live in and move. But I mean... It can be exhausting. And I think that's a point that uh, you made me realize, David, when you were talking about connecting these groups, because it's really important, right, to do those things. Like, I'm trying to get the art gallery and the theater people involved here because they are the ones that could link to other groups that aren't necessarily even know they could be on side with us. Spreading mm -hmm. out so that you don't have to deal with a lot, because it is a lot if you consider yourself a leader or an organizer. I know social media. Uh, can be a great organizing tool, but it can also cause a lot of harm. 
to specific communities because, as we know, uh, people who are against progress, perhaps, also utilize social media platforms. I wondered what your thoughts both uh, both of you are uh, on building, number one, and organizing, but also communicating. What do you think is the best form of communication? How do you how do you utilize social media or do you have a love-hate relationship with it? Yes. Go Roy. <laughs> I loved your reaction. Uh, social media is changing, right? And it's also who controls social media, right? So it's like trying to get information on, say, Palestine and what's happening there. You have to realize Meta is not maybe your best friend, right? So you have to be aware of the social media and where it's coming from. Also, I find it the last thing we organized, I said, let's not use social media. Social media is a lot of work, right? You have to put the post up. You have to have the anxiety over who likes it, who shared it, who commented on it. Are the comment, do we have to delete this comment? Oh God, are they going to know? Are they going to organize? We organized this thing by email and it was magical. It was so magical. Here's an email with all the information. Send it out to people you know. If they have any questions, get back to me, but we'll see you all there. I didn't know how many people were going to show up. I didn't know if it would be a success. I didn't know, you know, people would say I'm coming. I'd feel really good. But I knew that all of this A, organizing, all of this like planning was done away from social media. It was so refreshing because I wasn't worried. I wasn't like, oh my God, who put that post up? So it was like wonderful to use, but living rurally where media is so sparse and questionable. And now even with like Facebook, not allowing news stories on the pages, it's a good question. I don't have an answer. I, I say, use it if you can, but be very aware that other people see it. Other people use it. It causes anxiety. It causes distractions in a way. Cause if somebody starts talking about something you don't even want to talk about, you have to kind of address it or delete it. It's, and it's a small town too. So you're like, oh my God, there's crazy Joe again, putting his crazy fucking shit about G4. What am I going to say? G5, like, you know, I don't want to organize that. I want to organize fun. I don't want to be your nanny. So, I mean, I love email. I love email. I, that's how I'm going to organize. It's like old school phone tree, which I love. What do you think about social media? Ground up started just as a Twitter account. And in many ways, that's really all ground up is. <laughs> Like in some ways, you're right that the social media train is evolving really rapidly right now. X or whatever they're calling it has kind of shifted a lot. Meta has is not allowing news. So there's a lot of real big challenges, I think, in the current moment. And we're definitely in transition. People everywhere around the community are trying to follow things that they care about, things that are important to them, things that are happening. We should expect that there actually is people out in there in the community who care and want to help and want to get involved. And they are hunting for this information. And we just have to find the best way to get it to them. What that will look like, I think, will evolve. One of the things I liked about social media at the start, like the anonymity of it was really powerful. It like popped out on the scene and we're just like calling out elected officials for their voting record and we're just highlighting issues in the community and because it was like there was the mystery of what is ground up who is ground up what is going on with ground up even to this day like you know there are lots of people whose names are now attached to ground up but because it's the ground up itself is not a person i get way more hate when i do something personally than when i do something with ground up amorphousness shields and that protection is very important i tell people if you're going to say something controversial use ground up to do it like i'm like because like you need that protection and and like and it's it's valuable because sometimes things need to be said especially in the terms of hostility right like 
trolls won't bother they don't bother ground up they don't come from the ground up but they will come for individuals like and so that protection that social media can provide is very important but what it looks like now is going to be evolving i think because of what happened to twitter and what's happened to the others it will depend on where people are at i think email is a really interesting tool um it is relies on a certain degree of personal relationships so it's kind of an extension of personal relationships which are really powerful but the challenge i think is that like it's going to be hard then to reach the people who care who are outside of that right who are outside of that network who are isolated having a place for it's like a signal like a bat signal to people who are out searching mm-hmm. online who are you know in a small town or in a like in a on a farm wanting to care and like having lots of feelings um, and they they're already there like they're they're searching where they can and so it's just about finding you know and you're not going to be able to find everything right um but i think having a couple like one or two bat signals out there that people can flock to can be very valuable mm-hmm. and we'll see what they look like i'm really very interested in nextdoor as an app it's like the most almost like the social media that's closest to reality or closest to the ground but it's like terrifying because <laughs> there's a lot of hostility and like actual violence, like in terms of like people calling the cops on their neighbors and on homeless people and on stuff that happens on that app. But it makes me excited is the idea of like, how do you disrupt that? Um, and so I think lots is possible on social media. I also would say, just don't do it alone. Like get a team, you know, get a buddy, get a partner, get someone you can tag team it and pick a social media and throw a bat signal in there and see what happens. Cause you're going to find people and where, wherever you go, you're going to find people and then build that, but just don't do it alone. I think when you do it alone, it, it, it will destroy, like it is soul crushing, um, but having it be a kind of collective project, maybe there's a bit of anonymity that you can rely on to protect you. I think that, um, yeah, I think that's probably the best strategy for social media. Could I ask my questions of okay. David? You, you find out you become the voice, right? You have to always be careful in rural areas that you're not, you don't become the voice of the movement. You know, you can, you can talk, of course, everybody should. I mean, this is one of the reasons like we were, we started a not like as an anonymous group because I, I didn't want it to be about me. Right. Like, it's like, I'm, I'm literally no one special. <laughs> I have no better analysis than anyone else. I am no expert in any thing i also think very mindful of like the yeah the traps of ego like like you know i see happens with politicians all the time and even like influencers get caught up in all that stuff um and i'm like we're trying to act like the goal is to mobilize people and move people i'm always the one doing podcasts i'm often the one doing interviews i try and frame it in the lens of like i have a specific role right i am founder and i can that's a role so i can speak as like you know, no one has the knowledge that I do because I started the bullshit back in the day, you know? So that's like a specific role I can speak from. And, you know, or if, if there's a specific action, I can play the role of media liaison because I know the like bullshit tricks that journalists play and know the <laughs> tactics. And like, and, and so I'm like, I'm framing it like my, this is my role. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not the expert, but I'm playing this role. It's either to speak from my experience as the founder or it's cause I am playing this role of media liaison. And so maybe I think leaning into roles as another way, you need to bully journalists a little bit, like, you know, cause 
they are so frustrating. So, uh, you know, just don't get, let them take, take your power. That's another thing. <laughs> yeah. People don't realize that you have the power that the person who is the subject of the interview actually holds power and mm-hmm. journalists want you to think that you don't hold any power, but you do, you hold all the power. You can say, I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. And that pisses them off. Getting back to, and I want to kind of close things out a little bit. You both have so much knowledge and I'm so grateful. There is someone listening or, or a group of people in different small communities in BC and PEI, and they don't have any organized group, any kind of protests, any kind of subject, any kind of issue, but they want to. And they want to rally the people in their community. Uh, David, you mentioned, you know, having a, a beacon online, but what can they do? How can they start uh, to mobilize others in their community and, and, and create a group? I would say first things first, like if you are anyone in southwestern Ontario, you can contact Ground Up. I see Waterloo Region as this gateway into all of southwest Ontario. And I want so anyone in Southwest Ontario to know we're we're not that far away, and we can you, we can you can borrow our resources and our and come for advice. Like please don't be a stranger, because um, I'd love to spark seeds and transform everything that's possible in Southwest Ontario. You just need one person to be your like, and that's and then you're you're and then you're organized and your thing. A lot of it is like just like taking risks. If you are a white person listening to this and you want, you're like, oh, like I hear racism in my community and, oh, maybe we should wait. There are activists across Canada who are very, very clear and what they want from white people. And so you don't have to be an expert. You just have to act on what those calls to action are. And the idea of doing, like you don't have to be perfect before you do, just start doing and things can come from that. Name the reality of risks. Like what is it? What is a risk actually? Some of them are very complicated, especially relationship ones are very complicated, but you have so much power and tools as a person to navigate those things as well. So I give you the blessings of courage to try things, see what happens. There are organizers across the, the world that you can learn from. You can even ask direct questions. If you sent an email to ground.wr.gmail.com, someone from my network can can give you some advice. Like, like you're not alone. Um, and so I hope you find their power. And like, I was on, like, I did nothing. And then three years ago, now I'm doing tons, like tons of stuff. So everyone now looks at me as like, I'm the master organizer. I'm like, no, <laughs> I just stumbled and failed for three years. And now I'm here. And so you stumble and fail and you will become, and you will learn skills and you will find community and things will happen. So person out there listening, li- listening in rural Ontario or rural anywhere or city, I love you. And um, I want to tell you um, to not just go for your cause, right? Like you might see a cause over there where you want to get involved in. That's great. But also get involved in your community. Like there's a library. Is there a book club? Get a book you want to read. Get other, one other person to meet at the library. That's visible. That should, people are going to see that the Palestinian authors group is meeting at the library. That's radical, right? They're going to see it. It's not, or maybe you're reading fantasy. I don't care, but people are seeing you volunteer at the food bank, volunteer at the skating rink where kids are skating, like get out there and be part of your community. And then when you ask people to come to the rally, they're going to say, yeah, why wouldn't I? You help, you know, my kid 
skate. You know, like they know you, you become somebody who's known. And I wouldn't trust anybody who said to me that I didn't know, come to this rally. I'd go, why? What would I go? What are you doing? Why would I go? If you want to lead these things, people should know you. Um, and in small rural areas, it's it's easy. Also, plan to enjoy yourself. You know, as hard as it is in, plan to have a good time. Plan to know that these people are good people and they want to have a good time too, right? So it's hard. You'll have hard conversations maybe, but the thing is you'll be breaking bread with these people. You'll be, you know, supporting them. You'll be doing stuff to help build your community. At the bottom line for me, it's building community. Because when you have community, when you know you're supported, when you know you have people there, it's much easier to take those risks. It's much easier to organize. It's much easier to support other people doing stuff because you're building momentum, right? I think that's the most important thing. How do you build momentum? Like if you did a rally yesterday, think about what you're going to do tomorrow. And maybe it won't be a rally. Maybe it'll be just like a, you know, we live in a beautiful area full of trails. Go for a walk, organize a walking group that's going to walk and talk or maybe silently meditate or whatever. But the thing is, there's so much, there's so many things that we need you to do in these small communities that has nothing to do with politics. And then maybe, well, it does. Everything has to do with politics, you ask me. But the thing is to get yourself out there, please. Like, that's what you have to do. You have to just get involved. And it doesn't have to be, nobody's judging you on how involved you are, right? You go and help an old lady across the street, you're involved, right? Don't let anybody tell you you're not involved because you're part of a community and you just have to find that and build it. That's my advice. You know what would really help me and this podcast keep going? Leaving us a four-star rating or even a review. I'd really appreciate that. To connect with other rural Canadian co-conspirators, subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter or drop me an email. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm. And the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Luni Lenape, and Adirondwan peoples. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. We will speak to many people across Turtle Island, and as a settler, I'm committed to deepening my understanding of colonialism dismantling other systems of oppression. My commitment to the TRC calls to action and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and to Spirit for the opportunity for love and connection and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who I believe still walk the earth. Until next time, 